Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and how you can fix almost anything with enough bailing wire and gusto. I'm Frank Spring, joined today by Ellie Jacobs, who is now director of the FBI somehow. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. That's actually Director Jacobs to you now. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners and fans for all their comments, both positive and negative, and urge you to subscribe and rate us. Actually, urge is really not strong enough. Let's go with beseech. We beseech you to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter. At, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in pit stop. This week we're going to do a very special episode of Taking Ship. Up until now we've stuck with American and British politics while staying away from Israeli politics, which is an area that I, I know a good deal about and am involved with. But no more. Today we're going to take a big risk of alienating even our most loyal fans. Prove your loyalty. <laughs> Listen to this episode. To do that, we're going to be joined in just a few minutes by our friend and fellow Truman Project member, Dan Siegel, to answer all the questions you've always wanted to ask about Israel and were just too afraid to ask. Yes, and before we get into that, uh, we're looking forward to our conversation with Dan in a few minutes, but before we get into that, we have to talk about, well, we have to talk about, alas, poor James Comey, we hardly knew ye, and what we did know was not entirely to your credit. Yeah, kind of full disclosure on this. Um, we just can't read any more articles about how narcissistic and fucked up Trump is. Uh, every day, someone seems to find a new way to write a new feature piece about how he's emotionally crippled and toxically narcissistic. Uh, we've been reading that basically that exact same story for almost two years now, and if I had cared before then, it seems like I could have been reading it for the previous 30 years. Uh, in fact, uh, Jimmy Breslin, who is a very famous New York New York. Uh, tabloid columnist who passed away a few weeks ago has been writing just those columns about Trump for uh, several decades now. Yeah, it's there is a, I mean, there really is a library. This would be the Trump library, actually. It's just going to be a series of feature pieces on on how narcissistic this guy is, <clears throat> which is a kind of meta commentary on the idea of a presidential library itself. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, these feature pieces occasionally have some utility, and so in the in spite of the fact that we're now just overloaded by this stuff. Um, we have to acknowledge that, and yet we are graced by a piece in Time Magazine, of all places, that actually lays out what happened to Comey pretty nicely, or rather the circumstances, kind of emotional and moral circumstances that led to, to, to Comey's firing. So in this piece in the New York Times, which is unsettling, sorry, Magazine. sorry, Time Magazine, a bigger part, which is rather unsettlingly called Donald Trump After Hours, if we were be if we were better at editing, we'd throw in some like porn music in the background right now. <laughs> Hello, good evening, and welcome to Trump. <laughs> it's, it's it gets a little creepy fast. It's that's funny. really that's okay. just terrible. That's just horrifying. So moving right along from from that god awful start, this is a, a, a this is truly a great podcast. Uh, in this piece, uh, Donald Trump uh, after hours or whatever it is. In the White House dining room, again, this is in Time Magazine. In the New York, in the White House dining room, Trump gets. Two scoops of ice cream, of vanilla ice cream with his chocolate cream pie while everyone else gets one. He gets two – they call it containers, but I think it's pretty clear what they mean, like those little ramekins. He gets two ramekins of salad dressing while everyone else gets one. Everything this dude does, down to how much salad dressing he gets in his dining room, is designed to publicly and obviously exaggerate his importance and his exceptionalism. 
Yeah, and we're going to leave alone for now the idea that a man of 70 year olds is eating that much ice cream and chocolate pie. But uh, in reality, <laughs> it kind of boils down to, as Frank was saying, it, it, this article does a good job of explaining sort of the underlying things that are going on in Trump's head. And basically, Comey refused to down, bow down before Caesar and his salad, apparently. Um, in this case, Comey refused to back the president's account of uh, President Obama wiretapping him. And he refused to play ball in the Russia investigation. So obviously there was only one option. He had to go. Yeah. And Senate Democrats are being cagey about uh, whether or not they're going to use Comey's firing. Uh, and and this is this is not just in uh, as a kind of political ploy, but as a, you know, the, I mean, very genuine, very real concern about what Comey's firing means. Uh, they're being cagey about stopping the GOP agenda over this. Uh, they they could uh, the the Senate they could cause a, a really quite a shocking amount of friction as the Senate attempts to push through its own health care bill. Uh, it's looking they're looking to do tax reform later in the year, which is even more complicated. Will require even will will need an even smoother passage um, just to to get a, a hearing and and just to be just to be conducted in a sort of normal way. Uh, all Senate business votes, committee hearings, all of it uh, depend on unanimous consent, which is to say, like, you can't actually do the minutia of Senate, like the basic working of the Senate depends on unanimous consent, uh, which requires Democrats. It's in the name unanimous. Uh, Senate Democrats could refuse that unanimous consent until they get uh, an independent investigation, a special prosecutor. Uh, essentially, they could just say this this body is not going to conduct any business or at least not going to conduct it smoothly uh, until we get answers, until we get what we want on on uh, the Russian investigation and we get answers on Comey. Uh, it's not clear yet if they are going to do that. And I suspect part of the, you know, they're being very cagey about whether or not they're they're going to become that difficult over uh, over this. And I think part of this is they themselves, I suspect, this is the Senate Democrats, I suspect collectively don't quite know what they want yet. I think there's some people who want a special prosecutor. You saw a number of senators, uh, Martin Heinrich from New Mexico being one of them. Uh, Tom Udall came out the same way. This is this is the New Mexican connection in me showing. But like there are a number of, of Democratic senators who came out yesterday saying it's time for us to appoint a special prosecutor. There were others who were saying what we really Really need is an independent investigation. Those two things are similar. They're not the same thing. So it may be that the Senate Democrats are being a little bit mum on what their future plans are until they figure out collectively the direction they want to go on this thing. But this is, they have the power to use this as an occasion to make life very hard for uh, Senate Republicans. And based on certainly what McConnell said yesterday, if they want to be assured that the Comey's firing isn't going to derail what investigation there is, they're going to have to, they're going to have to get tough sooner or later. Yeah. I think it's a combination of that. They themselves don't know what, exactly what they want, which is problematic in my mind that they haven't figured that out yet. But I also think that in kind of classic, let's hope Washington can work morning Joe sense, uh, they're waiting to see what a couple key Republicans uh, are going to come out and do and say publicly, uh, folks like, uh, Lindsey Graham, John McCain, Jeff Flake, um, well, Marco Rubio demonstrated his spinelessness yesterday in saying that he's just cool with basically everything that's going on. It's a wonder that man can even. Well, it's a wonder that man can even stand. He oh, lacks he, so, he lacks so much spine. That's exactly right. I mean, he. I will give him this though. He is as reliable as time. Like, or yeah. you know, I mean, he's you know whatever. You know, whenever the, you need someone to, you know, get out in front of the cameras and just mealy mouth blither his way through uh, a a truly breathtaking performance of pusillanimity, that guy is. I mean, he he's your dude. He is right there for you.
first yeah. choice. Yeah, I, I it, you know, it, it's there were an of, NFL draft of cowardice. It would be it would be Marco Rubio, like number one overall. He's a he's a franchise he's a franchise coward. That's yeah. what he is. Yeah, he is the Peyton Manning of cowardice. That's exactly right. The Peyton, that's exactly right. If, if you look at look at his value over like. You know your your replacement level cowardice. Marco Rubio is he's a he's a he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. He yeah. really is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but you know, as we've already sort of digressed off of Comey a little bit, there isn't a whole lot more that we can say that hasn't been said already. Um, but we want everybody to think about this on our patented malice versus incompetence scale. To remind you, Frank and I have concluded that this White House works really in just two ways: either with malicious intent or with sheer unbridled, unmatched, unparalleled ahistorical incompetence. Uh, people get hung up a lot thinking that the White House is doing things you know, with the right hand to distract from what they're doing with the left hand or vice versa. That's actually not what's happening. It is either malice or incompetence every single time. And this one yes. is no different. Exactly. Uh, and except on those rare occasions when it's both. Uh, so this, and, and this one seems to kind of fall into both categories. In that the firing of Comey was clearly done with malicious intent, and and not only that, but but I mean this is a this is a real treat for us. Specifically, two different kinds of malicious intent. One of them was very particular. It was to hinder the probe into Russia's meddling with the campaign and or collusion with the Trump campaign. I don't necessarily know that that specifically articulated reason is what was in Donald Trump's mind, but certainly someone was thinking about that. Uh, Kushner, Pence, any of the number of people who we would have talked to about this had to have had that in mind, the opportunity to derail that. Uh, and there seems to be some evidence that's coming out now uh, that that investigation was beginning to pick up a little bit of steam. So firing Comey is, is partly about getting rid of that. So that, that is without question malicious. The other, and this is speaking about uh, Trump himself, uh, is the other element of sort of malicious intent was a general grudge uh, that Trump has held against Comey for not validating him and his vulgar fantasies of persecution by the Obama administration, uh, even unto the point of perjury. So, you know, Trump has been, you know, pushed this line that he was wiretapped by, by the Obama administration. Comey pushed back on that. Um, and essentially, Comey has just generally, just generally declined to play ball with Trump's version of events. Uh, and, uh, and and that is that earned him the ire of Donald Trump made him made Trump feel like Comey was making him look bad, which again is the highest crime you can commit in this White House or this administration is to make Trump look bad, at least according to Donald Trump. Uh, and and as a result, so that's the second layer of malice, right? There was the first layer of malice specific to the Russia meddling. The second was this Russia investigation, I should say. The second was uh, Trump's uh, feeling of uh, Trump's grudge against Comey. And that malice, that combined malice, was executed with the Trump administration's customary breathtaking incompetence. Yeah, and it wasn't just politically incompetent. It was also, it lacked just even professionalism. Uh, Comey found out that he was being fired while he was speaking to FBI staff at a recruiting event. Um, yeah, he saw it on the news. He saw it on the news, and his staff had to scramble to find out what was actually going on and then get him off the stage. Um, and this happened while Trump sent his erstwhile bodyguard and confidant, Keith Schiller, who I'm fairly certain we will see do a perp walk before this is all over to deliver this famous letter in which Donald Trump scribbled his name on the bottom and said that and thanked Comey for on three separate occasions saying that he was not being investigated, which I just find wildly improbable that Comey would have said that at any point, let alone three times. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at this like 
you know, you find out on the you find out on the news while you're talking to your staff that you've been fired, while someone else is hand delivering this like this bizarre and crowing resignation letter. Like somewhere, Lane Kiffin is watching this and thinking, <laughs> "Oh man, that's rough." You know, you've fallen very, very far when you're getting thoughts and prayers from Lane Kiffin over a firing. Yeah, and yeah, you have to you have to ask yourself uh, since seemingly at this point, it, only Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon have any real sway over the president. Although a lot of reporters have been saying uh, that Hope Hicks um, uh, handles a great, great deal of uh, kind of Trump wrangling. Um, so either Jared Kushner or Steve Bannon thought this was a good idea, and why? And from the reporting, um, and we know what goes on behind closed doors in this White House because it leaks like an incontinent ninety-two-year-old man. Bannon thought apparently it was a bad idea um, because of the fallout, not because he was opposed to getting rid of, Com- of Comey. While yeah, it was Jared- mainly, he, he wanted to delay it, if I understand correctly. Yeah, that's sort of the way I was reading it, too. Uh, while Jared and Ivanka, Javanka, um, at least one of whom is already a target of the ongoing investigation, were not opposed to it at all, uh, in fact, supported the idea. Um, and then the incompetence just gets better with yesterday's optics of Sergey Lavrov and Sergey Kislyak in the Oval Office uh, to meet with Trump, preceded by none other than Henry Kissinger. Honestly, without reincarnating Richard Nixon and Haddleman themselves, you couldn't have planned out a worse look for this White House. And of course, we only know about the meeting with the Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador because the White House was kind enough to let the Russian state propaganda photographer be the only official capturer of these famed moments. Yeah, take a second to reflect on that image. Uh, and, and we are actually going to leave it there on that ghastly vignette. Uh, we're going to take a, a short break and we'll be right back uh, in a minute with our guest, Dan Siegel. All right. Welcome back. Uh, we are here joined uh, with our guest, Dan Siegel. And our subject now is occasioned by President Trump's First uh, journey abroad, uh, to our knowledge, this is the first time that he will ever be going somewhere other than a Trump property. Uh, note that might not actually be true. Uh, he has a trip to Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Vatican later this month. Uh, this will apparently be his first time in Israel, uh, despite some uh, media reports of a 1989 dossier that was prepared by the Israeli government in advance of a proposed trip, uh, but it doesn't look like he actually went. Uh, so anyway, there's some there's some murkiness about whether he's ever been to Israel before, uh, but it appears he has not. This is his first visit, uh, and in light of this significant trip and uh, and the potential for uh, yet another go around, another restart of the peace process, uh, we thought it was a, a a good occasion to dive into uh, American and Israeli relations a little bit more. Uh, so we are joined by our guest Dan Siegel. Yeah, Dan is a career organizer and political strategist, and as we mentioned, he's also a uh, member of the Truman National Security Project with Frank and I. Uh, Dan started as a field organizer in Connecticut, worked his way up the ladder, and upon returning to his native Philadelphia, where he's joining us today, earned a spot of Pennsylvania's 30 under 30 for his work on the Obama re-election in 2012. After managing citywide races in Philadelphia and legislative races in New Jersey, God help him, he started uh, Thema Strategies in 2013 to solve one problem, bringing professional strategic talent to races and organizations that typically either cannot afford or are not connected to strategic political talent. Since 2013, he's served as a senior advisor on over 20 state and local races, managing over $12 million in campaign budgets and setting winning strategies for difficult races. He's also the founder of Jefferson's List, 
a new web-based marketplace to connect candidates with high-quality political professionals. So everybody should check that out if you want jobs that will pay something, because that's always a good thing, and help candidates that need to get elected. Um, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right. Israel gets a lot of coverage and a lot of focus in American politics uh, and for what is a comparatively small country. And so this is a, a, a good occasion to talk about why and how that developed. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about Israeli politics that we're going to talk about, uh, particularly about is American and Israeli relations and uh, with specifically and in some detail through the prism of American politics and the effect of kind of Israel and its fortunes on uh, on Republicans and Democrats alike. But we're going to start a little bit by talking about uh, Israel's own politics. Uh, so let's let's dive into this uh, beginning with Ellie. Ellie, can you give us a kind of a broad sense of the parties and how Israel and how Israeli politics is presently and how it came to be in its present state? Yeah, who boy, it's a loaded question. Uh, so the Israeli government works on a parla parliamentary system, uh, similar to the UK. Um, a lot of some of the civil law uh, that Israel follows is actually based on a lot of UK models because Great Britain um, controlled Palestine after the First World War through uh, Israel's independence, through when they left and Israel's independence in 1948. So there's a broad array of parties that are uh, that make up the parliament in Israel. Um, there's a certain threshold that a party has to get in national elections in order to get any seats in the Knesset, which is the parliament in Israel. Um, and then you have to form a coalition, a governing coalition, in order to control the government. So uh, Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been the prime minister for uh, what seems like forever at this point, but he is... Uh, uh, he is still short of being the longest serving prime minister by a couple years, I think, uh, short of Ben-Gurion, who was the founding prime minister. Um, his current coalition is made up, um, people often say that it's, the, many people say, that is the most right-wing coalition in Israeli po political history. It's debatable, but it's certainly very right-wing. It's made up of the Likud party, which is his party, which has 20-some-odd um, seats in the Knesset, um, the Israel Home Party, um, a Victor Lieberman's party, uh, which is the, um, um, uh, it's also a pretty right-wing party. Um, and right and left are defined, interestingly, in Israel. A lot of it has to do uh, with vis-a-vis -vis Israeli national security and Palestinians. Some of it has to do with religious aspects. Uh, but what's interesting is the third largest party in, in the Knesset right now is actually the Arab League. Uh, sorry, the um, uh, Joint Arab List, which, uh, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's got like six, 15 or 16 seats. Uh, which is interesting. That's the third largest party. Uh, the Zionist Union, which is the second largest party, is not a member of the coalition. Uh, that is what was made up of the Labor Party mixed with uh, Hatznua, which was a newer party. Uh, parties pop up and disappear every so often as new politicians don't get along with old politicians and decide to start their own parties, or generals retire, or foreign ministers retire, and they decide to start new parties. So it's kind of a constant moving and mixing uh, group of politicians, uh, but the important thing to remember is that at any moment the entire government could come collapsing down if one of the parties that's a member of the coalition decides they want to leave. Um, and that's one of the reasons that um, because of Netanyahu's right-leaning government, a lot of the policies he takes uh, are to appease those members of his coalition to keep them in line so that he can keep, his that he can keep the government without having to launch um, new elections. So is the is the sense here that that there isn't it in coalition governments uh, 
it is usually the kind of the what you might call the junior part. Like in, in usual, usually in parliaments, there is what might be called a senior partner and then a couple of junior partners, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's one party that's big enough to form the bulk of the votes. Yep. And then a couple of and then a couple of junior partners that are necessary to get over the line. Uh, is it, and often in those cases, the senior partner acts like a senior partner because they are the you know they're the they're the biggest one. They could potentially form a minority government if nothing else could be arranged. But here it sounds like the minor like the junior partners who are comparatively fri- who are more fringe than uh, Likud are actually getting to drive more of the agenda than you would expect in a parliamentary system. Is that a, is that a fair characterization? And and if so, what's the effect on on Israeli politics more broadly? That that's a broadly fair statement. I mean, basically there are 120 seats in the Knesset, so you need 61 to win to to govern essentially. Um, so Netanyahu had to cobble together a bunch of smaller parties to, in order to make his coalitions, which is kind of a bizarre thing. Usually. You know, you have one big party, you have another party that's also probably significant, and they're, they're the ideological opposites, and then you kind of have, you know, two or three other parties that are significantly sized. In Israel right now, um, there's the Kud, the Zionist Union, um, Yesha Atid, which is um, a, a newer party uh, headed by someone named Yair Lapid, um, who is a famous um, newscaster for a very long time in Israel. Uh, he currently has uh, one of the larger parties, um, the largest outside of the Zionist Union that is not a member of the coalition. Uh, so Netanyahu had to kind of cobble together uh, with a bunch of much smaller, with parties that had much fewer seats, um, like Bennett's, which is like eight seats, Khalon's um, um, uh, uh, party, which whose name completely escapes me right now. Dan, if you remember it off the top of your head, jump in, um, which uh, also features... Um, Michael Oren, who's the former ambassador to the United States. Um, so yeah, there's a in, in a sense, a lot of these, because he had to cobble together with these smaller parties, or now smaller parties, uh, they have a lot of sway over his, over his government as a whole because he desperately needs them. And they get a, probably a disproportionate amount of power than they would if they were left out of the government completely. All right. Let's talk about some of the investigations that have come up around uh, Benjamin uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's leadership. Uh, so what what's happening with those? Yeah. So interestingly, um, you know, Israel is really the only democracy in the region, and it's a real democracy in the sense that everybody's held accountable. Uh, the last two, um, the last, the previous prime minister is in prison. The previous uh, president is in prison, um, and Netanyahu has basically faced investigations off and on his entire political career. It's like being governor of New Jersey. Uh, yeah, basically, it's like Chicago and New Jersey met and had their own had their own um, uh, little baby government. Um, so the current investigations are basically corruption cases. Uh, you know, ideas that he took cigars and champagne and suits from some wealthy business people. There's another one that's going on about um, some um, collusion he may have had with one of the newspapers to cover him better. Um, he has thus far escaped. Um, reasonably unscathed from previous scandals that he's been involved with, things like um, an outlandish ice cream budget for the prime minister's mansion, um, his wife kind of being a shrew. <laughs> wait, 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 wait! Now you're just making game of us. I wish. I wish <laughs> there was an invest. There was an investigation into how much money the prime minister's mansion was spending on ice cream on a monthly basis. And it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
Turning now to the question of vanilla, chocolate, and shrewishness. Yeah, so, you know, as we previously discussed, that, that Trump wants gets two scoops when everybody else gets one scoop, Netanyahu gets all the scoops. That's all the scoops. There's actually well, a button on BB's desk for ice cream, much like there is on Trump's desk for Coke. Could we start an ice cream-based party in the Israeli part in the Knesset? Because it sounds like the opportunity is there. The, the old joke is the flight from JFK to Tel Aviv, two new parties pop up. So I don't see why not. <laughs> That's really funny. All right, good. Excellent. So thus, thus far, uh, the, these current investigations have not resulted in indictments, um, but it, it very much seems like the current ones very likely could lead to an indictment. And then the question becomes, uh, does that take down the government? Um, because previous prime ministers have been indicted and not had to take apart the government while they were under indictment. Um, it's unclear that Netanyahu would have that kind of support. Got brought down by ice cream at the end. Well, it's a fate that awaits us all. Well, this time it would um, be champagne, suits, and cigars. That, that actually, that, actually that there is a much, much better chance that that is what undoes everyone who is on this podcast. <laughs> we're all at risk, boys. All right, here we go. So, so there is some... So the, the, this government is potentially fra is a little bit fragile for a couple of reasons. One, it's hanging on by the skin of its teeth just on a numbers basis, and its leader is under investigation because of ice cream suits and, and, and shrewishness, which is one of my, my favorite combinations of, uh, of political scandals. In this context, we have t – and well, let's talk a little bit about the Ameri – turning now to American-Israeli relations. The American – there was a – the Trump – on the campaign trail and immediately after his election was talking about moving the American embassy in Israel. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Why, why would he want to do that? Why would he not want to do that? Why is it a big deal? Yeah. So in the mid nineties, uh, Congress passed a law and, uh, president Clinton signed it, um, to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So right now, um, Israel is the only country in which the United States official embassy, the seat of the ambassador, is not in the recognized capital, uh, the, the capital that the country itself recognizes as its capital. This becomes a whole other thing about whether or not uh, the international community's approach to Jerusalem being the capital of Israel or not. But to go back to this law that was signed, in, signed into place in the mid-90s, 94-95, I can't really remember off the top of my head, um, basically, the way the law was written, and the only reason Clinton was willing to sign it, was that there was an amendment added that allowed the president on national security grounds to waive the law. So essentially, every six months since the mid-90s, President Clinton and President Bush and President Obama have every six months signed a waiver saying that it is against the national security interests of the United States to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, that, that waiver comes up June 1st. And there has been some conversation that Trump would move the embassy, uh, would not sign the waiver, forcing the embassy to move. Um, it was something that he campaigned on. It's something that Clinton campaigned on. It's something that uh, Bill Clinton campaigned on. It's something that George Bush campaigned on. It's something John McCain campaigned on, Mitt Romney campaigned on, Obama mentioned a few times, uh, John Kerry campaigned on. I mean, this is a thing that politicians in America, getting back to your idea of sort of um, the role of Israel, that Israel plays in the American political psyche, uh, this is a pretty prime example. Um, but now there are reports coming out of Israel um, that seem reasonably definitive that Trump has decided to not move the embassy, which is something that he promised to do on day one, much like he promised to tear up the Iran deal on day one. And this leads us into a good question here, which is, uh, 
why is Israel such a focal point in American politics? Like, why would you just that, that you know, why would all of these presidential candidates make a point of, you know, make the movement of this embassy a focal point of their, or a, a significant point, not a focal point, but a significant point of their, of their campaigns? Uh, and why does Israel and Israeli issues play uh, such a large role in, in American politics? And for this, I want to turn to Dan. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's for a couple of reasons, some very practical and some I think are the result of a misconception of the American Jewish community. Um, one, it's important to remember that the American Jewish community is about 3% of the population in the United States, but it's a significantly larger portion of the electorate. We outvote our numbers. Um, so when you're talking to the American Jewish community, despite being a relatively small amount of the population, you're talking to seven, eight, nine percent of the voters. And while they're sort of put into very specific geographic areas that overwhelmingly vote Democrat, um, it's a group that's very politically active and therefore spends a lot of money in politics. And if you look at the top 50 donors on either side of the aisle, you'll see that almost half the names are members of the American Jewish community. So a lot of the pandering that goes on is towards the uh, political heavyweights in the American Jewish community uh, and those who align themselves with issues that are important to the American Jewish community. However, while Israel has sort of become a litmus test for support from this community, uh, if you look at the polling over the last five, six, seven years, you'll see that Israel doesn't appear in the top seven things that American Jews vote on. And a lot of the things that non-Jews don't realize is that while we care about Israel, the Jewish community overwhelmingly cares about pocketbook issues and social issues a heck of a lot more because we're Americans first and Jews second. Um, so I think that when politicians are thinking, how do I garner the support of the American Jewish community? What can I do that will make them very happy? It's, oh, I'm going to talk about Israel because Israel is what every Jew cares about. And while it's a common thread, it is rarely, with the exception of a, a relatively small portion of the American Jewish population, it's not what's dragging us out to the polls. What would, what are the top, so you just mentioned, and I, I don't expect you to have them all in order and completely memorized, but you know, if you talk about like the top seven issues that American Jewish voters care about, uh, and Israel being toward the bottom of it, what would you know some of the top three or four be? It looks same thing everybody like, else cares about. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it splits Democrat, Republican pretty much the same. American Jews tend to be a little more so liberal on social issues overall. Um, mm -hmm. But economically, it splits exactly the way you'd see Democrats and Republicans split across the board. Sure. Yeah. The, you know, the other the other thing to keep in mind is um, I think Hillary got 70 some odd percent of the Jewish vote. Uh, Obama's numbers were equal. Um, you know, it's usually in the presidential elections, at least the American Jewish community is voting overwhelmingly uh, democratic. Uh, one of the one of the things that Dan um, brushed on is while the Jewish community is largely isolated, uh, not isolated, but largely, uh, largely um, um, significant in, in, in generally blue states, um, California, New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, um, there are larger Jewish communities in Florida, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. And because of that, um, they're often looked at as a, as a community that, while it doesn't vote in a block, there is a belief by some political strategists that if you can pander to this group just enough, maybe you can flip, flip some specific districts. You know, Miami-Dade, for instance, um, um, is heavily Jewish. Uh, where Dan is in Philly, there's a large Jewish community. And these are areas that, if they do flip one way or the other, could have a significant impact on the Electoral College map. 
Sure. If you're talking about, and I think this Dan's earlier points on numbers is a really good one. I mean, this is demographically a comparatively small community overall, but if you're talking about seven, eight, you know, in some areas, 10, 15% of the electorate, uh, that's actually a pretty significant voting block, especially if you're talking about a swing district. Uh, if, but, but one of the, you know, it, for, for, to the extent that the American Jewish community does care about Israel, uh, and obviously for some people it's a very important issue, for others it is less important, but something they still care about, it would also be a mistake to assume there is a kind of monolithic view of Israel's, strat American strategy toward Israel, Israel's own place in the, in the world, its own strategy uh, in the region, uh, and that is represented by a couple of, those sort of different camps are represented by a couple of different uh, organizations that are involved in American politics. Uh, so I want to turn uh, to one of them first, and then we'll we'll take on the other. So uh, let's talk a little bit about APAC, uh, American Israeli uh, Political Action Committee. Is that right? Yep, Public Affairs right. Committee. Public Public Affairs. That's right. It's Public Affairs Committee. It's not political. APAC is not actually a PAC. Yeah, that's right. It's not a PAC. That's a, that, thank you. That's exactly. They have right. a PAC, it's but a PAC. they are not a PAC. <laughs> it's that's exactly right. It's you know it's funny. Uh, you know you they are you know such a a, a very significant sort of figure and force in American politics. Uh, but it's easy to, but you know, but that, that, uh, that acronym is, uh, is, you know, so common, but actually it's, it's not something that I think a lot of people, even if you spend a lot of time around it necessarily know that it's, it's public affairs and not political action committee. Okay. APAC, let's talk about APAC. Let's talk about who they are, uh, what they do in American politics. And we're going to start, uh, with you, Ellie, on this one, and then we're going to turn to Dan. Yeah. So, um, APAC, uh, is, they pride themselves on being bipartisan. Um, that's kind of slipped in the last few years just based on sort of some of the natural movements of the two parties away from each other in some ways. Um, particularly the Iran deal was a big uh, factor in some of that split. Um, generally, uh, the view by many APAC members that uh, President Obama, despite the fact that uh, intelligence um, relations, defense relations, financial relations, and diplomatic ties had never been closer with Israel, uh, there was a large view that he was um, anti-Israel or not as positive as some of his predecessors. So that is one of the, these things that, I mean, Dan will talk about it a little bit more, but it's one of these things that has kind of split uh, APAC into, uh, into some trouble. Um, you know, for instance, uh, last year uh, when Donald Trump spoke at APAC, um, um, he made a mention that uh, 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 he sort of veiledly, and not veiled, he doesn't do anything that's veiled, he's basically a sledgehammer. Uh, he made a comment about President Obama that uh, grew, that uh, gained, uh, you know, 18,000 people sitting at the, at, at, um, at the arena in D.C. cheered. Um, and the next morning, the APAC board came out and castigated their members for uh, cheering over uh, Trump's insult to Obama because they tried, they worked very, very hard to be bipartisan. Um, you know, they, they work hard on um, ensuring that Israel maintains its position as a priority um, in terms of foreign policy with the United States. Uh, it's often, you know, when you see these lists about the most powerful lobbying organizations in D.C., they are rarely not in the top five. And it's like kind of the NRA, AARP, APAC, uh, and the accountants. I mean, that's kind of like the, the groups that you see, maybe the real estate guys. Um, so the organization as a whole has done a, a really remarkable job in terms of growth, especially over the last 20 or 25 years. Um, but in particular, their goal is just keeping Israel on the front burner, on the front, pe on the front of people's minds. Um, they spend a lot of time and money uh, cultivating a bench of politicians, getting them on trips to Israel, um, you know, starting with 
um, folks um, at the city and state level um, who they see may have potential to run later on. Um, they have a massive policy arm that is continuously um, evaluating and prodding for policies and legislation and, and, and foreign affair dollars for Israel. Um, but they're not without controversy um, because uh, of particularly of the relationship that they had with Obama over the last eight years. So to talk about that, let's turn now to Dan. Uh, you know, what has kind of been your experience or what is your read on, on APEC and its operations? And can you talk about their, their relationship with the Obama administration and how that has shaped their politics and perception in politics? Absolutely. I mean, first, you know, I am, uh, I find myself every day a little bit less aligned with APEC, but I, I have to say that historically APEC did a lot of really great work and they can take a lot of credit and well-deserved credit for the status of the relationship between the United States and Israel. And I think that that is something that gets lost in a lot of the political past. That, you know, 50 years ago, there was one game in town and they were responsible historically for this relationship. Um, and they've also built one of the most effective legislative lobbying models in the country. And it's one that lots of other organizations have modeled their own advocacy off of. So I think too, you know, a lot of the problem with the center and the left of the Jewish community is not respecting the model that APAC has built uh, because it's a good one. That being said, the policy is more complicated. Uh, for a long time, APAC really did represent the majority Jewish opinion in the United States. Um, and as a result, you know, it kept APAC being the major player in town across the board on issues that mattered to the Jewish American community. You had some fringe groups, uh, Zionist Organization of America on the right, Jewish Voice for Peace on the left, but they were overwhelmingly sort of around the fringes, took on an issue here and there, relatively small membership, relatively small amount of money. And APAC is where everyone wanted to be politically. Uh, it seemed to me that a lot of the issue concerning the relationship with Obama was result of the national partisanship, hyper-partisanship that was going on anyway. Um, and this was sort of an outlet for the Jewish American community to do it as well. I'll also say that Bibi and Obama just didn't like each other. And when you, and I'll say that for good reason. So Bibi went to Cheltenham High, which is a Philadelphia suburb, which means if you grew up in Philadelphia, your parents grew up in Philadelphia, you know a lot of people who went to high school with Bibi. And by all accounts, he's kind of an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't really fault Obama for not liking the guy. But at the end of the day, the American-Israeli relationship, by every metricable standard, grew closer than in any time in history. You know, $38 billion memorandum of understanding for security. Uh, Obama, while rhetor rhetorically very hard on Bibi, did not take a whole lot of direct actions to stand in the way of things that he found reprehensible. Uh, and Bibi won't acknowledge this, I don't think, but Obama was one of the best things that ever happened to him because he would get tons of support from the American security establishment. And then he would also be able to go to his right wing and say, oh, Obama won't let me do all of these right wing things. So you guys have to be happy with what we got and be happy that we got all the tanks uh, and that America is still our ally, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm really interested to see how the next couple of years political life plays out now that he doesn't have this sort of boogeyman on the left to placate his right wing. Because while I, I think Bibi is a, you know, a relatively right-wing individual. He's certainly not as far right as a huge chunk of his coalition is. 
And without this boogeyman who he can say, oh, this guy's not going to let me do it, he's going to have to appease a lot more of his wife. And I think it's put APAC in this very bizarre situation, too, where their primary goal is to advocate on behalf of the needs of Israel and the American-Jewish relationship. But now you're going to see an Israeli establishment moving farther and farther to the right and therefore alienating more and more of the American Jewish community as well. And in the context of Israeli politics, when you say, and I, I think there's probably for our, our listeners a, a general understanding of this, but I want to be explicit. What does far to the right mean in this context? <laughs> yeah, that is complicated. Sure. Uh, it, the, the right and left wing, as Ellie said, really breaks down around security. Um, but there's a really big question mark about what security means. Um, and I think that is very heavily couched in the sort of existential views on what does Israel mean to itself and to the American or the diaspora of Jews around the world, specifically the American Jewish community. Um, in Israel, it is a question of what does the future of the state look like? Um, and the vast majority of Israelis just want peace, same as most of the Palestinians and their Arab neighbors. Um, but what that piece looks like varies dramatically. The right wing tends to, but not exclusively, uh, move towards a one-state solution. Um, even though rhetorically there is talk of a two-state solution, the actions taken by the right wing in Israel move the country closer and closer to a one-state solution, looks a lot like status quo, while the left embraces more of the pathways towards an independent Palestinian state living side by side with a democratic Jewish state. Yeah, I mean, Dan. Dan kind of hit on on that all. It gets all a little fuzzier. Yeah, it, it's fuzzier than that. And then there are you know are certain aspects when you start talking about the Palestinians and, and the peace process. Uh, there are some important factors that are involved. So, for instance, um, members of the right, like Dan just said, there is this concept of an existential threat against Israel. You heard that term a lot about Iran, and you'll hear that some will say the same about the Palestinians. If you give the Palestinians a state, it's going to turn into the next ISIS, and they're going to destroy Israel. Um, you know, even ref, left, right, and center, and this is a point that I think is often missed um, in the larger conversation, left, right, and center um, are all worried about giving the Palestinians um, more territory because Israelis look at what happened in Gaza. Um, uh, the Israel, so the West Bank, the Golan Heights, East Jerusalem, and Gaza were all conquered 50 years ago this year um, during the Six-Day War when uh, the Egyptians and the Syrians and the Jordanians decided to try to annihilate Israel. Um, and the Israelis, very miraculously, uh, there's really no other word for it, managed to win. Um, and win back a tremendous amount of territory, including the Sinai Desert, which was then returned to Egypt um, in exchange for peace uh, during the Camp David Accords in 78-79. Uh, um, so in 94, Ariel Sharon, who uh, was viewed as the most hawkish of the prime ministers ever, um, and was an original founder of the state, he'd been around forever, he had served in multiple um, governments at various levels, um, and, uh, not without controversy throughout his entire career. In 1994, he decided to, uh, sorry, in 2004, he decided to um, evacuate Gaza, essentially moving all the Israelis that had moved to settlements in, Ga in the Gaza Strip out, uh, forcibly uh, moving them out to the point that they um, unearthed uh, graves to move every Israeli from Gaza. Um, and in response to that, um, Hamas was elected in 2006. Uh, they still remain control, uh, in control in Gaza. And uh, much to the chagrin and fe um, fear of Israelis, um, there has been now three or four um, 
reasonably large-scale military incursions that the Israelis have had to go back into Gaza to calm down uh, rocket flow. There has been a continual uh, number of rockets on a very regular basis that come over the fence from Gaza. And the fact that Gaza kind of reached this point where there are rockets coming over and there's a terrorist organization running it uh, puts a lot of fear in Israelis left, right, and center. Uh, the right will use it in some ways. The left will just be scared of it and say, okay, maybe we can do better this next time around. Um, but the fact that the Israelis have uh, vacated Lebanon, uh, southern Lebanon, in, um, in the uh, late 90s, um, and then Gaza in the mid-2000s, and both resulted in terrorist organizations launching rockets at Israel, uh, doesn't give, um, a, gives many Israelis a pause about making a larger peace commitment. Dan, is that a fair characterization of kind of an example of right and left of right and left in, in Israeli politics and in the way that it's viewed in the U.S.? Yes, but uh, I'll suggest that you know a huge chunk of the Israeli security establishment is deeply concerned that uh, the government of Israel is taking steps that make an eventual peace deal nigh impossible. Yeah, um, yeah specifically around the construction of settlements. You know, there is the the original 1948 line suggests a West Bank, a Palestinian state, about 660,000 square kilometers of contiguous land. Um, and this is generally accepted. It's a starting point for a peace negotiation. But as settlement construction continues and military incursions into the West Bank continue, um, the geography just gets a lot more complicated. Um, and it's what's sort of leading to this one state status quo that I think is the root cause of a lot of the violence, obviously not all of it. Some of it is just is purely religious and political, and I don't think we can discount that. Um, but I do think it adds to the frustration of a population on both sides um, that are really trying to get towards peace and don't know how to do it. So the security establishment, I think, you know, in the United States, the security establishment tends to be more hawkish. Um, meanwhile, in Israel, the security establishment is moving farther and farther towards uh, an establishment desperately searching for peace or if nothing else, to stop taking things off the table that would allow uh, an eventual peace to be struck between Israelis and Palestinians. I want to move on here from APAC uh, to uh, a different view of, of this you know, within American politics. Before we do, uh, Dan, you mentioned APAC's lobbying model, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to articulate a little bit more about their model and why that's been so effective. Uh, because it is all-inclusive. Uh, as Ellie mentioned, APAC does not wait for someone to become a member of Congress. Uh, the APAC starts building relationships with political players in the Jewish and non-Jewish communities long before they are ever elected to office. Um, they work with political influencers at the state and local level. Uh, they work with state reps. You know, the, uh, the legislative delegations to Israel are significant. My city councilman went on one last year. Um, and it, it is a model that allows APAC to um, not just push legislation, but also show a view of Israel that is conducive to um, the end result that they're, they're trying to show. And it's the same with birthright. You know, a lot of the funders of APAC are the same funders of birthright, which, you know, the joke in the young Jewish American community is that birthright is the Disneyland tour of Israel. Um, everything is bright and sunny and wonderful and you're going to make a Jewish person and an Israeli person and have a bunch of Israeli babies and grow the Jewish state. Um, meanwhile, it's obviously more complicated than that. It's more complicated than that. Um, but, but, you know, it shows that APAC is getting, getting people to agree with the worldview 
to start pushing legislation. And once people become elected, it's a of having on the ground influencers who have close personal relationships with members of Congress in conjunction with a significant uh, presence on the Hill and regular lobby days is one that has proven extremely effective in not just pushing legislation, but ensuring that legislators um, have a constant contact and that their APAC contact is their first call when a piece of Israel-focused legislation comes to the table. So yeah, really there's, there's one other thing to keep in mind that APAC has done extraordinarily well of, and that is um, working with the evangelical right and um, groups like uh, Kufi, Christians United for Israel. Uh, APAC has really taken advantage of that aspect of the American non-Jewish community to continue to build support. So we've talked some about APAC, its effective model, and why it has been uh, such a you know such an effective force uh, in American politics uh, for its its issues and its worldview. There's an there's another organization that has popped up uh, fairly recently in the context of American politics that has served as kind of a counterpoint to APAC uh, within the American Jewish community, and that uh, organization is J Street. Uh, so Dan, can you tell us a little bit about J Street, uh, how they came about, uh, what what kind of their activities and uh, and model is, and how they differ from APAC? Yeah, of course. Uh, and full disclosure, I was a J Street employee for a year and a half. I'm not sure if that's good or bad for them as I talk about it, uh, but I am intimately familiar. Um, so J Street was founded in 2008 by a guy named Jeremy Benemy, who is a longtime Clinton staffer and, and policy staffer in the White House. Um, in response to the fact that over the course of the 90s and early 2000s, as Ellie mentioned, APAC had started moving to the right um, and was no longer a sort of traditionally centrist organization, which left this growing bubble um, in the center and sort of the more moderate left of Jews who felt left behind by their organizations. Um, there were far right-wing organizations, there were far left-wing organizations, and all of a sudden there was this bubble uh, of Jews who were you know, not aligned with the far Jewish left, Jewish Voice for Peace, which was all about concessions to Arabs and Palestinians um, and was no longer being represented by AIPAC. So J Street came about with the single issue uh, of creating space, particularly in the American political system for leadership on a two-state solution. Uh, so practically what this looks like is unlike AIPAC, which deals in any number of American-Israeli Israeli relationships points, uh, J Street was trying to change the conversation both politically and within the Jewish community of how we discuss two states. Um, so a lot of it is standing in the way of things that are adverse to the two-state solution. So a lot of what J Street's work is, is um, advocating for American leadership to stop settlements, um, but also for issues that are a little bit more tangential, like J Street took the lead on lobbying uh, for the Iran deal. Um, J Street's taken the lead on uh, bringing together particularly the Democratic side of the aisle, but also a few Republicans who have broken ranks to start creating this bipartisan support for a legitimate path to peace. Um, while the other Jewish organizations deal with other issues in relation to the American Jewish community. Yeah, it, it, that's a pretty good summary of what it is. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think that the, we've seen this kind of APAC turn to the right, certainly over the last eight years or so, is uh, APAC views themselves as, and they're the Israeli uh, Public Affairs Committee. They lobby for Israel, and therefore they represent Israel's government and Israel's government at the time's priorities. 
to some extent. So because BB has been there so long at this point, uh, they are seen as sort of, you know, a wholly owned subsidiary of the Likud party, which isn't too far off base in terms of uh, a lot of what they've been pushing for. Um, and Dan brings up a really important point um, that one of a massive, massive flashpoint um, in the during the Obama years, particularly over the last three years. And as Truman guys, we all know this really, really well, was the Iran deal. Um, Netanyahu was uh, vehemently opposed to it, um, despite the fact that I have always wondered why he didn't take a little bit more of a win in the fact that it was very much his pushing um, and threat that he would bomb Iran that led to the international sanctions that created the, the situation that led to the deal itself. Um, but he, uh, in a very famous speech um, at, at from the well of the house, um, which he was, which was sort of, uh, uh, not sort of, it was very much done behind President Obama's back uh, with the Israeli ambassador, um, Ron Dermer and John Boehner cooking this up. Uh, Bibi castigated the Iran deal. Um, which very much put APAC in a position where, despite the fact that the deal hit most of the points that APAC had laid out the year before for the deal being considered um, positive, uh, because Netanyahu was so opposed to it, they also had to come out very strongly opposed to it. And J Street uh, took a very different position on that and was therefore viewed by uh, some members of the Jewish community as just being um, the water carrier for Obama and the Democratic Party. Um, uh, because specifically, uh, as Dan mentioned, they were very much uh, established to talk about a two-state solution and uh, give room for uh, um, members of Congress and, and politicians to feel more comfortable or at least safer about coming out against settlement development. Um, for, so for them to take a position on the Iran deal, um, while not necessarily unusual because they are doing um, work for, they are working for Israel in the United States, um, it was viewed um, more as they were just being the guys who were carrying Obama. Um, and that was looked at askance because Netanyahu was so thoroughly opposed to the Iran deal. Um, and then the other point that Dan brings up in terms of the settlements, um, the settlements, uh, it's obviously a complex subject, but also not a complex, complex subject. Essentially, the idea behind two states for two people living in peace and security next to each other is built... Um, around the Oslo, that's where the Oslo Accords were supposed to lead to the establishment of a Palestinian state. The idea of land for peace was firmly established as an idea uh, with the Camp David Accords. Um, and the settlements have grown uh, exponentially over the last 10 years. Um, you know, interestingly, it's still, they, the people who live in the settlements still represent less than 4.5% of the Israeli population. Um, and importantly, and this is another thing that um, I think a lot of American observers lose, lose sight of, um, is that the Israelis themselves look at settlements almost in two categories. They look at uh, the idea of kind of building up and around Jerusalem proper itself in one category, and settlements deep into the West Bank, you know, around Jericho or uh, closer to the Jordan River as a different category. Meaning that Israelis overall uh, don't have a problem with building settlements in what's called the Gush Block, which is directly south of Israel, um, or expanding uh, Jerusalem into East Jerusalem. They may not be thrilled with it, but they don't look at it the same as, uh, for instance, building in Beit El or Ariel, which are much deeper into the West Bank and really do cause significant problems in terms of the idea of building a continuous Palestinian state sometime in the future. And that, that's a really interesting point, because I think it also underscores the division um, between the religious right and 
the uh, the rest of the Israeli population. You know, there's sort of two categories of Israeli settlers. There's the ones who go because the housing's cheap, yep. and there's yep. the ones who go because they believe it's their divine right to occupy that land and that God will protect them. Yeah. Uh, and the economic incentive is understandable, and it's something I think that the vast majority of Israelis can get behind, um, if they're, even if they're not terribly comfortable with it. But it also creates significantly fewer political problems because you're making expansions around the margins that can be swapped out for other land moving forward. Meanwhile, the goal of the religious settlers are to create an unsustainable Palestinian state so that greater Israel can exist and that the Jews can occupy all of Judea and Samaria. Um, and it, it sort of underscores the religious and political divides in the state of Israel in general. Uh, to go back just one second on the Iran deal, um, you know, one of the most interesting things, and Ellie touched on this a little, that APAC exists to lobby on behalf of Israel where J Street exists to lobby the American political system using the power of the American Jewry to create American leadership on Israeli issues. Uh, so it's sort of a fundamental difference of how they, the organizations look at how this process uh, occurs and who their target audience is. Um, I think one of the biggest reasons J Street got involved in the Iran deal, and I'll caveat that I got there for the last six weeks, so I got to celebrate without doing any of the hard work. That's the, that's the best kind. <laughs> decent work, Dan. Decent yeah, that's work. strong work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I'll, I'll wave the flag with everyone and have a glass of champagne. Um, but I, I, it was to show that, you know, J Street really is an American Jewish presence advocating for American Jewish ideals. And you had an American Jewish community that overwhelmingly supported the Iran deal. Uh, and it was a real sort of flex of this lobbying muscle that J Street had been using but had never been able to implement on a grand stage because, frankly, issues of Israel do not come up that often in the greater uh, zeitgeist of American politics. Um, so this was an opportunity for J Street to show that it was representative of the vast majority of the American Jewish community on an issue that people who are paying attention to American politics in general are attuned to. Yeah, and you know, an interesting point to make in terms of APEC and, and kind of their success rate, like overall, it's phenomenal what they've been able to do. But the two specific times that they have taken on a sitting president, they've lost. Uh, when they took on Obama over the Iran deal, they lost to the tune of $45 million and a lot of just genuine support. And then in the mid-80s, they took on uh, Reagan when Reagan wanted to sell uh, um, some AWAC um, airplanes to Saudi Arabia. The Israelis were very, very opposed to it, and it ended up happening anyway. Uh, which is also brings up the point of the settlers, and yes, they're a very small but very vocal percentage of the Israeli population, but they've also basically lost on every single major battle. Um, they were evacuated from the Sinai by Menachem Begin when he gave it back to the Egyptians. They were evacuated out of Gaza when Ariel Sharon decided to disengage from Gaza. Um, and they've been stymied left and right in terms of expanding the, the, way, that, the way that they want to, um, partially, this is what Dan was alluding to before, uh, Bibi was able to use Obama as sort of the uh, fall guy for why he was preventing the settlers from expanding quite the way that they wanted to. Um, and it actually it brings up probably where you may want to go next, Frank, was this idea that uh, certain segments of the Jewish population in America, and definitely certain segments of the population in Israel, uh, were ecstatic about Trump because they thought that the um, you know, the dams would be open to anything that they wanted to do because he wasn't Obama. So we are going to come to that. Uh, and, I, and I want to talk about this 
is obviously not an intended consequence of either of these organizations, APAC or J Street. Uh, they have, as Dan pointed out, I mean, not only are they have different conceptions of themselves and their missions, uh, and you know, different constituencies, different methodologies. Neither of them is meant to be politically aligned. In fact, both of them, as I understand it, are, are deliberately designed and are deliberately designed to be essentially bipartisan or nonpartisan. And yet, the trajectory of how Israeli issues have been viewed in the United States in the context of our politics means that APAC seems to be increasingly identified with the Republican Party and J Street increasingly identified with the Democratic Party. And I know that wasn't a designed outcome, and I think neither organization would say that that was something they wanted or sought, uh, but that that appears to have happened. Is that a fair characterization, Dan? Yeah, and in fact, if you go back and look at <clears throat> J Street's first list of political endorsees, because J Street is a C3, C4, the connected pack, you'll see about a dozen Republican names on there. Um, unfortunately, those Republicans either lost their seats uh, or are no longer sort of aligned with J Street mission and values. Um, and I think it sort of speaks to the growing polarization, our political process in general. Um, and APAC has also been very swift with retribution uh, with members that it feels have deviated from its uh, its talking points and its mission. Uh, to the point that in the early 80s, they spent millions of dollars, and I cannot remember where this happened, on a congressman in the South who had the audacity to use the word Palestinian. Um, and you know, it has created this, this culture that I think kept a lot of members in line for many, many years on APAC's particular mission and talking points. Um, but I think now that there are organizations like J Street that are giving cover for folks to have differing opinions and sometimes contrary opinions, uh, to policy in Israel that has led to a more partisan and, in fact, more hyper-partisan divide between the two organizations. It's a complete, yeah, that's a pretty fair um, uh, diagnosis of it. I think, you know, in particular, we saw the Iran deal uh, really create a schism that was, uh, I would say, APAC was really uh, trying to avoid, but it ended up happening. Um, I, I think that another area where you see uh, kind of this playing out is, very interestingly, uh, as I mentioned, you know, one of the APAC's things that they've been very good at is uh, working with the um, Christian right, um, you know, using kind of the traditional Jewish biblical, you know, we're all we all going to we're all going to be saved kind of thing um, to their advantage. Um, and very interestingly, uh, you see a lot of politicians who uh, are uh, go up in arms over uh, marriage equality, um, abortion rights certain other, um, um, you know, social issues uh, here in America, while in the very next sentence they talk about their support of Israel because Israel is such an accommodating society where uh, LGBT marriage is allowed and marijuana, marijuana, medical marijuana is allowed. Um, abortion, while not um, um, popular um, and certainly not um, very widespread, is legal. Um, so it, it, Israel becomes an interesting sort of not a litmus test, but it becomes this interesting thing for, I think, particularly politicians on the right, where they are defending a country that they disagree with on social issues um, based on other things. And that, again, shows some of the power of APAC, that they're able to do that, kind of thread that needle. And one of the times that, uh, very prominent times, that they that APAC made common cause with uh, evangelical Christian organizations, among others, was indeed on the Iran deal itself. 
we've talked about that uh, some in the context of other questions about APAC and J Street. Uh, but I want to just give both of you an opportunity to to talk a little bit more about the Iran deal, which, to your earlier point, Dan, was one of the few occasions when uh, an issue of you know an issue that's of particular importance to Israel became a massive American political deal. Uh, so we've talked about this thing some, but uh, if either of you have, have observations you want to offer on the Iran deal and how it's affected American-Israeli relations, uh, please go ahead and we're going to start with Dan. Yeah, so I think it's a, you know, we, we use the term existential crisis a lot to talk about the larger concern, the larger ideological issues at play with Israel and Palestine, the two-state solution, where there's this crux of how do you maintain Israel as a democratic and Jewish state? Uh, you know, it's a numbers game more every year. There are more and more uh, Arabs, Palestinians living in the region. So uh, you either create a democratic state where everybody votes um, and you give them in a one state solution. Everybody votes. It's no longer a Jewish state or you don't give Arabs the vote and it's a Jewish state, but it's not democratic anymore. Therefore, a two state solution. Um, I think the same existential crisis applies towards the bringing in of the Christian right towards the American Jewish political discussion, because the motivations are very different. Um, with the American Jewish community, we want Israel to be a Jewish democratic state because we believe in a Jewish democratic state. We've seen what happens when we are always strangers in someone else's land. It does not end well for us historically. Uh, and the Jewish state was to be a solution to this issue. Um, however, the Christian right sees Jewish occupation of the land of Israel as a tool to bring across the second coming of the Messiah. And for me, <laughs> that creates this really significant existential crisis of, yes, we have the same means, but the end is extraordinarily different. Um, and that means, in my mind at least, we could be at any time betrayed by a Christian right that has a different vision in mind for what a Jewish state looks like. Um, please, please, Dan, what historical precedent is for <laughs> powerful Christian figures ever making, uh, making, making friends with a Jewish community and then suddenly turning on them? Oh, it's never ended badly in the last 5,000 years. I just, you know, I think it's going to be great. Um, so for me, that creates this, this interesting, you know, existential religious problem, but also I think a political problem where if the Jewish community, uh, the diaspora in general, but particularly in the United States, relies too heavily on the influence of the evangelical right, that we will lose control of our ability to push legislation when the eventuality occurs that the Jewish community and the evangelical right are no longer aligned on whatever the next step is. Yeah, that's a great Tell point. One of the points that, uh, you know, again, we've kind of touched on a couple different times is, uh, Frank, you and I talked about a few weeks ago how uh, feckless and uh, impotent the Labor Party is in the UK. Um, the Labor Party in Israel is not much far behind that. Um, and that has, that has played a huge role in sort of where things stand right now. Um, you know, I mentioned that uh, uh, one of the reasons that this split has kind of happened in terms of uh, the American approach and APAC is seen as more Republican um, is because they've been working with Netanyahu for so long. And my question has been for quite some time, exactly what happens with all these people who have become um, enraptured by Israel, um, particularly in the evangelical right that Dan just mentioned, uh, what happens when there is a more centrist or even a left-wing government running Israel? What is the reaction then? And how do people respond to that? What happens when suddenly the things that you've been pushing for or said that you're working on doing uh, are no longer the priority of the government in Israel? What does APAC do to respond to that? What do evangelical Christians 
who, as Dan said, I mean, I face the same problem continuously of, yeah, we're supporting people who are supporting us just because they want the Messiah to come. And the only way the Messiah comes is if we all convert or die. So I don't really know how that works in our advantage so well. But that's sort of, you know, in a very simple way, saying some of that support for the, excuse me, from the evangelical community comes from. Um, but um, uh, kind of bringing it back around to the Iran deal, um, Iran is seen as an, ex probably uh, with good reason, is seen as an existential threat to Israel. They continuously talk, continually, continually talk about destroying the Zionist entity. Uh, they write death to Israel on missiles that they shoot up in the air to test. Um, it, it's not, you know, it's not uh, strange for Israelis to be very concerned about the Iranians, particularly when the Iranians are also the people that are supplying Hezbollah and Hamas with the weapons that are then being used directly against the Israelis, um, and almost like you know a shadow war that's just going on beneath the surface. Um, and Netanyahu um, and Ehud Barak, uh, who was his defense minister um, at first, um, were you know at, at various different points, probably within you know a beer or two from bombing the Iranians, um, to the point that President Bush was terrified that that could happen, and Obama was petrified that that could happen, um, and that was one of the impetus for Obama to really push for the international sanctions. Uh, that had started under uh, President Bush. Uh, it's one of the reasons that Obama was able to push the international community into making these sanctions even harder because no one wanted to see the Israelis go bomb uh, aspects of Iran because that doesn't end well for anybody. Yeah, that's right. And and to just to expand a little bit, I think that one of the fallacies of the uh, you know folks who are detractors of the Jewish center and left is that J Street at all you know, don't think that Iran is an existential threat. We do. <laughs> um, and that's one of the reasons they lined up behind the Iran deal, because it was a chance to preserve peace. Um, but I think that what a lot of people forget about the Iran deal is that we reserve the right to bomb the shit out of them if they break it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that's a really important caveat when we talk about the Iran deal. It's, yes, we're going to give diplomacy and peace a chance, but we've got more bigger bombs than everyone else in the world. And if they defect on the deal, then we're going to bomb the crap out of them. And it doesn't take that card out of our pocket. Yeah. And one sure, of the, yeah. one of the big faults of APEC through the entire process was that they never presented a reasonable, plausible alternative path. Um, you know, as soon, you know, I, I was very skeptical of the deal, uh, partially because I was, you know, being influenced by what I was seeing coming out of Israel, where my parents are, and, you know, my concerns were a little bit more elevated with that. Um, but in lengthy conversations with several members of the Truman Project, um, I came around to kind of view it as um, a very imperfect solution to a terrible, terrible problem. Um, and... APAC was never able to work their way around to say, okay, we don't like this deal, but we're going to fix this solution by doing X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, the best that they were able to say is that we're going to bring this, we want to tighten the sanctions. The sanctions were gone. Russia had already sold weapons to the Iranians, you know, the S-300 missile system, anti-missile system, or whatever it was. The British and the French and the Germans were like, you know, standing on the border to go get involved in business. So, APEC didn't really present a plausible alternative to getting to the position of preventing Iran from having a nuclear weapon. And that's why this kind of argument of it's this deal or war 
um, although on the surface seems intellectually false, was sort of the reality of what the situation was. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons APAC failed um, to move anywhere near enough people into their court. Plus, they were working against the grain to begin with. And they essentially had to flip 12 Democrats, which was going to be a remarkably high uh, barrier, to, barrier to get. So let's turn our attention now to another piece of legislation, this one current, uh, that has uh, potentially significant implications for American-Israeli relations. Uh, this is the Taylor Force Act, uh, which was proposed in February of this year. Uh, and its fate is sort of, it's, as I understand it, is uncertain. Uh, Ellie, can you tell us a little bit about the Taylor Force Act, uh, you know, what it is, what it is, what it attempts to do, and then we're going to uh, hand it over to Dan. Yeah, so the Taylor Force Act um, is named for a um, U.S. Army veteran named Taylor Force who was killed um, along when uh, 10 other people were wounded when a Palestinian uh, man attacked them um, on the Tel Aviv uh, boardwalk. Um, apparently, uh, uh, Vice President's uh, wife and daughter were eating just down the block, apparently. Um, so Taylor Force Act, essentially, the idea behind this is currently the Palestinian Authority spends upwards of $300 million um, in, well, call it back pay, to um, Palestinians who are either in, in Israeli prisons or to the families of Palestinian, what they call martyrs, people who have gone and committed acts of terror and died in the process. Um, the Palestinian Authority pays, pays these families every month. Um, it's kind of a crazy idea that this is currently happening, ongoingly happening. Um, and the Taylor Force Act essentially um, basically says the United States is no longer going to fund the Palestinian Authority at all until they cease giving uh, paying out these, paying out these these monies on a regular basis to these to, the, to these families. Uh, the counter to it, um, and the reason that the Trump administration has not come out in full, uh, you know, vocal support of it, and, and neither has the Israeli government come out in full uh, vocal support of it, is the idea that um, if the Palestinian Authority ceases these payments, the Palestinian Authority will collapse. It will lose all support in the street, and there will be literally a revolution, the same way that there was um, in 2006 in Gaza when Hamas won. Um, so the Israelis and the Americans are very worried. Like nothing worries the Israelis more than the Palestinian Authority falling apart, because um, there is cooperation on security, there is some cooperation on economics and infrastructure, um, and if the authority falls, all that goes away, and that's a very scary situation. Dan, do you have anything on the Taylor Force Act? I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> so many thoughts. I mean, I think conceptually we all agree that payments to terrorists are bad. Uh, I think that that is something both parties, both countries, we all agree that that is generally correct. Um, I have a couple of problems. One is I'm concerned of any piece of legislation that removes discretion from a department. Um, and this piece of legislation would essentially remove discretion from the State Department. It's a great point. Make cuts based on what is in the best interest of career, or the best thoughts of career diplomats. And at a time when there is so much flux in the American diplomatic community, taking another tool out of their toolbox seems like a bad idea. Um, but furthermore, I, I think Ellie summed it up perfectly. The biggest impetus or the biggest uh, thing in standing in the way of path to peace is that we don't have reliable figureheads on either side. Um, 
Bibi is not reliable as far as the Palestinians are concerned, and Mahmoud Abbas is questionably powerful on a good day. Um, and to remove something that allows him to keep what government he has together is, is simply not a good idea. You know, we need a reliable partner in the Arab world on the Palestinian side if we're ever going to achieve a peaceful solution uh, to the crisis. And while this is certainly something that I think makes our skin crawl a little bit, uh, we have to admit that it is a useful tool for him to maintain what semblance of government he has. And I also don't think we should kid ourselves as Americans. We give lots of money to lots of countries that participate in terrorism in one way or another. Um, and I think it's important to understand that while we might not like a lot of these things, that in some ways it serves useful purposes in order to create a long-term solution to these shorter-term problems. So wh while we're uh, so while we're discussing the concept of nuance, which is kind of what this comes down to, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of you know it's 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 a you know it's a difficult principle to maintain when you're when I mean in so much of politics uh, and and any politics where there's issues of national and uh, and and or religious identity, and obviously this is a lot of both. Uh, it's, you know, nuance is one of the first things to go. Uh, and, and sort of, you know, look, so again, on the subject of, of nuance and it's, you know, it's, it's occasional decline. Uh, I want to go back to something that we talked about earlier, which is why were some Jews so excited about Trump and willing to ignore the tone of his campaign, the people he surrounds himself with, uh, you know, I mean, uh, some of whom, some of his now senior advisors in the white house, uh, are anti-Semites on public record, uh, and others have, and I'm thinking specifically about Steve Bannon, uh, but others, uh, including uh, Sebastian Gorka, have associations with organizations that are that have been or are currently avowedly anti-Semitic. Yeah, do you want me or Dan to start that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will take it. Let's start with Dan, and then Ellie, you can kind of. Um, look, I think it's for a couple reasons. I think one, as was touched on earlier, there were a lot of Jews who thought Trump would give BB carte blanche, not understanding that the Obama BB dynamic was actually good for him and his coalition. Um, but I also think, and this, you know, might be something of a faux pas to say, but I do think that Trump was an excuse for some Jews to vote for their economic or social best interests veiled in support for Israel. Um, just like every other community, there are Jews who are wealthy and want lower taxes, or there are Jews who are socially conservative and you know want to stymie the sort of progression of uh, progressive social policies. So I think for some subset of the population, the Trump pro-Israelness was simply a cloak to, it's, it's, it's sort of the wrapping yourself in the flag in order to further whatever your personal economic or social agenda is. But I do think that a lot of people just saw Trump as, as carte blanche for Israel. He could do whatever they want. Uh, Israel could move towards this, this one state status quo security situation. Uh, and that, that would be, that would be it for, uh, for this sort of quote unquote left wing liberal Israel policy that we've seen the rise of over the last 20 years. Yeah, and Dan hit kind of all, all, all the major points there. Um, you know, expand on a little bit. You know, one other area in addition to lower taxes and the social issues, uh, school choice becomes a big issue. Um, I think really what we're talking about here is um, significant portions of the uh, Orthodox community, um, and then folks like Sheldon Adelson um, were really the Trump, the Trump, you know, backers. 
Um, and going back to your initial question about sort of why does Israel kind of get this you know, disproportionate amount of attention paid to it, um, in large part it has to do with the personalities and the people involved in uh, the pro-Israel uh, uh, American Jewish community, or the pro-Likud uh, American Jewish community is probably a better way to put it. Um, and, and just speaking with um, some of my friends who are far to the right of my personal opinions on, 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 on Israel, uh, A, Trump wasn't Obama, so that was already a win. Uh, B, Trump was not Hillary Clinton, which was also a huge win. Um, C, and this is, the, this is one of the things that disgusts me um, in levels that uh, uh, honestly keep me awake at night at times, um, is Trump constantly um, covering himself in the idea that because his son-in-law and daughter are Jewish, he can do no wrong. Um, you know, th those of our listeners, um, all of them, all, you know, 20 of them, who regularly see stuff that I post on Facebook or on Twitter will, you know, know that I very frequently will post something that is just outlandishly something that I see as something that ordinarily Jews would be up in arms about, but, but, but Jared. Um, and because of Jared um, and uh, his position with, within Trump's orbit, um, his uh, family's prominence in um, the Jewish, communi Jewish community, uh, I think a lot is forgiven. I mean, you saw Trump use his uh, son and his son-in-law and daughter as uh, a response to a question about uh, anti-Semitism rising under his watch while Bibi was standing next to him, uh, which I thought was just wildly astounding. Um, and I keep thinking, you know, when uh, Frank, as we discussed on our, um, you know, uh, podcast about uh, uh, school for people who can't communicate good and Sean Spicer, I can't imagine what the reaction would have been if Ben Rhodes or Jake Sullivan had said similar things to what uh, Sean Spicer did. Um, but because of this belief that Trump will let Bibi do anything that he wants, and you know it'll be the death of the two-state solution. You know, remember when Netanyahu was here, Trump said, "One state, two state, who cares? I just want everybody to be happy," which was very much a gift to Netanyahu's right flank. Uh, this idea that the two-state solution was gone, and then obviously the top diplomats, uh, Ambassador Haley and um, uh, Rex Tillerson, were out in arms the next day, saying, "No, no, no, two states, two states. We're all about two states." Um, so I think that there's, you know, there was a lot of hope that that Trump would just kind of let Bibi do whatever he wanted. Uh, that was bolstered by his appointment of David Friedman as the ambassador to Israel. Um, it was bolstered again by uh, Jason Greenblatt as sort of the the chief negotiator. Um, and interestingly, Greenblatt has um, impressed people right, left, and center in, in Israel uh, with his very balanced approach. And I think uh, Friedman, uh, despite the fact that um, many American Jews were ecstatic with the idea that he was going to be the ambassador, um, I think will also disappoint um, members of the Israeli right to a huge degree. Yeah. And I think there's another existential thing at play here. And for all of the non-Jews listening, you know, Bear with me for a second. Um, I think that you know the the American Jewish community is historically an immigrant community, um, and I think that there is a sense now that we are a couple generations removed from the mass migration of Jews to America that we made it. You know, we are an established group of people who are overwhelmingly, you know, relatively socioeconomically at least middle class for the most part. Um, and I think there's a lot less of the existential fear about being an American Jew, like a Jew in America, than there is of, say, being a Jew in Israel. 
So I think a lot of the um, anti-Semitic things or the perhaps extreme oversights, like not mentioning Jews on, uh, on Yom HaShoah, is, uh, is something that the American Jewish community is overlooking just a little bit more because of this sense that we made it. Um, and I think that's felt more by the Jewish right than it is the Jewish left. And as a result, it, it seems to me that we are generally letting things slip. And I don't think it's just under Trump, but I think even instances of anti-Semitism over the last 20 years have been getting let go a little bit more because there's this sense that everything's going to be okay. Um, and it concerns me as an American Jew because you know it's very quickly things go from okay to not okay. Um, and it concerns me that the Jewish right uh, has allowed so much of this to get swept under the rug and has allowed so many of Trump's offhand statements to be made okay by the fact that his kids are Jewish. Uh, because so much of this is very reminiscent of what happens when you begin to marginalize a community. You start removing them from the narrative. You start removing the, uh, the things that make them a specific community. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a, great- a really good point. And on that uh, excellent and 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 foreboding note, uh, I think we're we're going to move. Guys, it's uh, going to be okay. <laughs> it's going to be okay. well. I mean, uh, you know, but this, this but this is that's that's an absolutely great and a really relevant point for for how these things have gone. Uh, we're going to move now. Uh, uh, out of our discussion of uh, of Israeli issues in, in American politics, uh, we're going to close this with our uh, our lightning round. Uh, so, uh, but before we get into the lightning round, uh, I just want to thank everyone who is listening for uh, for staying with us during a slightly longer discussion. Uh, we hope that it was uh, that it was informative and uh, and useful to you, and especially thank you, Dan, for uh, for bringing your expertise onto this one. Great deal of fun. All right. So with that, Dan, uh, these are just quick questions that we like to ask so uh, our listeners can get you know better idea of who we're talking to. Um, what's the best book, TV show, movie you've seen lately? You don't have to list one for each. It can just be one thing. Um, so the only book I've read in the last six months, because I work in electoral politics, um, was Colson's Whitehead, The Underground Railroad. Mm. Huge fan. Highly recommend. Uh, and on the trashier side of things, uh, I watched World War, or I'm sorry, not War, uh, Z Nation, the sci-fi zombie <laughs> show that is objectively terrible, but is just endlessly entertaining. Like the first episode has a zombie baby. Uh, you know, how bad could it be? Strong. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way. Uh, all right. So uh, favorite drink, alcoholic or not? Uh, I'm a sucker for a Boulevardier. You know, oh, that's whiskey, a good a one. Campari. Yeah, that's, uh, just, work. It really cures whatever ails you. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and in the Trump era, lots of people, particularly in uh, our community, are really interested in doing something. What's an organization you're supporting and why? Uh, so there's a couple. I mean, I am a big fan of the ACLU. Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, the thing, the thing that goes without saying in progressive politics these days. Um, I really like the, you know, specifically for the Jewish community, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, is doing some really good work. Uh, you know, I think they've always done good work, but in particular right now, I think they're doing really good work. And I'm really interested in a lot of these new progressive tech communities that are sprouting up. Um, Swing Left, Sister Districts, uh, you know, these are new organizations, but I see what they're trying to do. And I think it's a great idea. Um, so I'm trying to be supportive of them and I'm interested to see how they implement and use these massive lists and influence that they've built in extremely short periods of time. 
Yep. All right. And where can people on Twitter, on whatever social, whatever your preferred social media uh, venues are, where can people find and follow you? Oh God, I hate social media, but if you want to get in touch with me via social media, I'm at Siegel underscore tweets on Twitter. Uh, and I'm Dan Siegel, like 9,748 on Facebook. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out there's a few of us. All right. Thanks, Dan. This was great. Thanks, guys. All right. That's our show for the week. Thanks for sticking through this longer than usual episode. As always, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or whatever application you use. And follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, And that's ship with a P as in perfidious. With that, Frank, where are we headed this week? We take ship this week for Venice, erstwhile merchant empire, city of love, city of canals, the so-called Bruges of the South. This week, the good people of Venice, apparently goaded beyond endurance by the subpar quality of the food sold on the street to tourists, banned cheap, cheap street food. Uh, specifically, they banned kebabs and pizza by the slice, among other things. So what you're smelling now is not the tart reek of cheap tomato sauce, but instead the salty waft of opportunity. We're headed for Venice to open our own high-end street food stall, selling nothing but the finest meats in enormous quantities at truly staggering prices. We'll call it a hot doge stand, selling our eponymous special, the hot doge, 28 ounces, or 794 grams, of the finest quality meat shape, costing $65 American. Please email us at takingship at gmail.com for a franchise opportunity with the subject line, Expensive Street Meat. Friends, we take gondola now for Venice and meet. 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 <laughs> <laughs>